I was thinking that, uh, you know, because today three stands of Geshe-la's life came together very amicably. You had his family, his monastery, and us. And we all came together and spent the day together, um, you know, sharing amongst each other, learning about from each other. And I thought that was quite, quite beautiful, yeah? Yeah. Did other people, what did people think? What did you experience? It's a very rich day. Very culturally rich and spiritually rich. Yeah, culturally rich and spiritually, spiritually rich. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. I think that the Abbey f- held the space for the family and held the space for his Sangha, that they could just feel free to just be here and, and really take in what's happened. Yeah. Yeah, I think so too. Um, knowing that there are thousands of monks also in Drepung in India doing prayers today, just how much the virtue of one powerful person can incite others mm-hmm. to turn their minds to virtue mm-hmm. was just quite, you know, again and again and again, this influence of Geshe-la's virtue just influencing others to celebrate and to pay respect is quite something. Yeah. And the the funeral home in Newport had a brand new experience. <laughs> Their first Buddhist funeral, yeah, was quite something for them. And they were very accommodating, huh? You, you went to set up the the altar and do everything, yeah. And, and just so people know, Venerable Sangha Kadra went back. They, uh, people may not have known exactly when. Let me just go through this morning a little bit. You may remember in the middle of the chanting, you know, they did the, um, the, the cleansing prayer first, where you imagine all the Buddhas and Bodhisattvas and you're offering them baths. Yeah. It's, yeah, it's, it's, yeah, you're offering the baths in a big, beautiful bathhouse. And so that's done to, you know, for, for cleansing, purifying negative karma. And then right after that, um, you had seen that they were pouring water and then they offered cloth. You were offering new robes to the, to the holy beings. And then, uh, they gave Sepak one dish with some of the water in it and, he went at that point into the place where they, where the actual crematorium is. And I think he put the water there, you know, and also Geshe-la's Chugu. And then they started the cremation. And, uh, Sepak said that they stayed there five, six minutes. They wanted, you know, you can't see a lot, you know. Um, and then they came back and, were there with us for the rest of the chanting. So they have um, 
after a cremation, they have to let it cool. Yeah, so they told them to come back uh, later this afternoon. So Venerable Sangat Kadro went with. Did anybody else go with her? The ashes are up on the altar. Oh. The food offering in the front oh. Of the box. In the, the box there. I see. You came back oh, very so quickly. Wow. The person there divvied up what... Um, Sepak said that we could have a quarter of the ashes, so we, we got this full of the boxes we could, and the gentleman there filled the, the Ziploc bag, and we put it in the box. Uh-huh. Okay. Good. So that's very nice. So we have some of Geshe's ashes. There's been talk of maybe doing a stupa. Um, and of course, we have our own sukhavati where we scatter ashes. So we can figure out at a later date what to do. Yeah. I don't know that I heard the one of the monks say it exactly. But what he, he had said something like, sometimes when I hear chanting in English, I don't hear the Dharma. But your chanting was very beautiful. I heard the Dharma. Oh. And what I, what I felt really in all of it was seeing how, I have met some of those monks before, but generally we don't know these folks. But once again, just like we just had with the nuns, mm-hmm. connected with the Dharma, we are already all together. Yeah. And then we could hold Geshe's family, who's also connected in the Dharma, and you know, just that great sense of being held by the three jewels. Yeah. I found very kind of beautiful and mm-hmm. global with that awareness of the uh, the monks chanting around yeah. the world. Yeah. And I th- for me too also having his holiness's picture above the altar, it's like okay. You know what I mean cuz Geshe was had such a good relationship, a close relationship in his heart with his holiness, you know, and we do too. And it's like, yeah, we're all here doing the same thing, following the same thing for the same reason. So, yeah, yeah, bunch of white crows. (laughs) Yeah. Mm -hmm. And because the family came in November when it was so intense, Mm -hmm. you know, that really bonded us with them you know so when they came back this time of course there's still the grieving Mm -hmm. but it was like they just came into the fold you know that we could just be with them so immediately yeah they seemed very familiar with coming in here you know it wasn't like a strange place that they were coming to what they did dishes Mm. So Draper Mosling, Texas, also did prayers this morning. Yeah. And right now they're doing a light offering of 2,500 candles. Mm. Beautiful. Yeah. So uh, our journey goes on of, you know, all these different experiences and integrating them into our mind and, uh, you know, and keep coming back to, um, is my mind apprehending reality or not? (laughs) Yeah. Or am I off on some 
projection trip. You know, it really helps us to see how we project motivations, we project analysis of what's going on. And, um, yeah. But to see really how nice it is, you know, Geshe-la brings all these different people together who then benefit from being together. And when we did the the tour, Venerable Rinchen gave them a very lovely tour. Uh, then we did some chanting, or they did some chanting in the main the main hall, which was nice. How are the acoustics? They're good. Yeah, except the fans were blowing really loud. Yeah. And you turned off or down whatever you could, but they were still roaring. Yeah. They, they very much liked the view when we took them out on the, the deck. And I think they liked the fact that you could circumambulate the whole outside of the, of the, uh, hall. Okay. Anything else people want to say? Okay, so, and I think they're leaving tomorrow around, the flight's around noon, I think, something. And uh, I suspect that they all have jobs and so wanted to get back, and that's why they didn't stay longer. Okay, so we left off (laughs) in samsara, nirvana, and Buddha nature. How long ago was it? In October... October, November, December, January, three months ago. And I was looking at what, where we had come to, page 314. And I cannot start on page 314 because none of us are going to understand what it says because it's a summation of quite a few pages that came before it. Okay. So I decided not to go over that whole subject that came before, but to recommend that you do that on your own, you know, because it's going through the nine similes and, you know, it's, it's, there's charts in there that explain everything. And then this on 314, you know, there's a, a, a summary sheet. So go back over it and, and study that yourself. What I thought what I would do is start on the top of page uh, 315 with um, the quote from a sangha. Okay. And then, cause that kind of um, summarizes something and then go into the puzzle part of it. Okay. But let's start with our, our chanting. Yeah. Um, which, by the way, what chanting, you know, to the teacher in downtown and in the story, they did that whole prayer several times, uh, today. You know, it's one that, uh, yeah, in the Tibetan monasteries, what you say right before teachings and in situations like this, when you're called to chant something and you don't know what. So it's a praise to the three jewels and you start out with that. And it, it's really quite beautiful, yeah. And it has in it, you know, the, the offering verses to the Buddha, Dharma, and Sangha, the praise 
to Buddha, Dharma, and Sangha that we do with our lunchtime um, offering. So those are in there in that series too. Okay. So let's remember to visualize the field of merit in the space in front of us. And my teachers, when they explained the visualization, said it's not like, you know, when you visualize all the lineage teachers and and the Buddhas, that everybody's just sitting there very quietly, but they're discussing the Dharma, and uh, it's quite a lively scene. So this afternoon, uh, a thought entered my mind. I was thinking, which one of the three poisonous attitudes is worse? One way you can say it's ignorance. In terms of the three poisonous attitudes, ignorance refers to confusion over cause and effect and the law of karma. So yeah, that's a big problem. Attachment is a problem too. Yeah, attachment is born from ignorance. But the more you're attached to something, the angrier you get when that's you, there's interference with getting what you want or you lose what you want. So anger gives rise to I mean, attachment gives rise to anger. So is it the worst? Oh, but anger also is pretty bad because with it we destroy our own merit and we make a mess in the whatever situation we're in. But then I was thinking how in the uh, in our sojong, in our Posada text, uh, there's so much talk about harmony, you know, harmony in the Sangha. And of course, harmony is the opposite of when people are angry. And how the, in the ceremony it says that the harmony of the Sangha is one of the best conditions for attaining nirvana. You would have thought that they would have said meditating on emptiness is the best condition for attaining nirvana. They said, harmony in the Sangha. Why? Why that? Yeah. 
And then you think if there's no harmony in the Sangha, people are fighting over who knows what, then very difficult for anybody to practice the Dharma. Because people, we all get hooked into whatever quarrel is going on. And also disharmony in the Sangha then it not only makes it hard for the Sangha to practice, but also for the lay followers. They look and say, well, if these people can't get along, then, you know, <laughs> we certainly won't. And then they start taking sides, too, in whatever controversy is going on. And yet, all over our world, we see so much disharmony. Everybody wanting to be happy, nobody wanting to suffer, and people hurting each other, inflicting suffering on each other, even though that's what nobody wants. And while one side is inflicting, each side is inflicting suffering on the other, they're at the same time blaming the other side for the con- conflict. Nobody's accepting their own role in it. So somehow having the opportunity we have to stand back from all of that and look at the chaos, the world, through the eyes of Dharma, and it's then what we see is uh, an, incre- an incredible Lamrim teaching. And it becomes so clear that the Buddhist description of our lives, of samsara and so on, is spot on. So if the description's spot on, the remedy, I would say, must also be spot on. And how can you top wisdom and compassion as a remedy for whatever problems there are? So may we listen with open minds to the Dharma teachings and have a mind of compassion for sentient beings wandering in samsara who have the Buddha potential, but don't see it and don't know about it. So let's have that compassion that gives rise to bodhicitta be our, medi- our motivation this evening. I was just thinking the Buddha has given us so many different ways of stepping back to be able to see the plight of sentient beings and cultivate compassion. You know, so the one thing that I use a lot is 
uh, everybody wants happiness and nobody wants suffering. And yet, yeah, <laughs> things are pretty messy. And, and that helps me, you know, not blame, not criticize, but really have compassion for what people are doing and how people waste their lives and waste their time and hurt others. But another way, you know, to, to have c- compassion is to see that uh, all these beings have the Buddha potential but don't even know that they have it. And so uh, don't see any kind of alternative to the way they're living or the way they're being. You know, I don't know about you, but this was very much how I, you know, related to the world before I met the Dharma. Whatever I saw was true, and that's the way things are. And, um, you know, the most you could hope for was to eke out some happiness for yourself and the people you cared about and bat away everything that that bothered you. But nobody taught me when I was a kid or in school about Buddha potential. Nobody, did anybody of you learn about it in school? You know, or that other beings have the potential beco- to become fully awakened? You know, all I heard in school, the greatest potential is to become, you have the potential to become president. But... <laughs> Really? That's a good potential? I don't know. I don't want to be president. Okay. And now, well, anyway, I won't get into that. (laughs) Yeah, but nobody ever tells us that there's an alternative to the craziness that that we were born into, that our own mind uh, creates. Yeah. So when we can step back and see that and how people are blind then that's a cause for compassion, isn't it? Yeah. There's something there, and people can't see it and can't make use of it. So that fits in very well with the nine uh, similes that came a few pages earlier in the text. Yeah. There's the beautiful, you know, the first one, the beautiful Buddha statue in in an old decaying lotus yeah well that's kind of what it's like and nobody sees the statue yeah okay so to keep that in mind because this section now you know we're going talking a lot about buddha nature yeah and it's important to have a correct understanding of what buddha nature is because uh it's so easy for our mind to grasp at true existence and solidify. Oh, I have Buddha nature. So now, you know, there's, there's something, myself, my soul, and now there's something that I don't know what colors it is, but that is inherently pure from the beginning and was, is going to triumph over everything. And it's somewhere in that permanent thing that's me that's going to go on to the next life. Yeah? 
Yeah, is that kind of how it feels to you, you know? Uh, but that's not what Buddha nature is. Yeah. So we we shouldn't, uh, you know, our mind is always looking at, at something to grab onto that's truly existent, especially something that is truly existently positive, you know, yeah, inside me, yes. Okay. So let's let's start on, on three fifteen. So this is a quote from a Sangha in uh, Sublime Continuum Uttara Tantra was the name of the text. The similes taught in the Tathagatagarbha Sutra explain that the mind which has existed without beginning in all realms of sentient beings, is empty by nature, and therefore the afflictions are adventitious. Being empty by nature, this beginningless mind is inseparable from the innate development of the qualities of awakening. Whoa! Okay, so this mind has existed without beginning in all realms of sentient beings. Do you feel like your mind has existed without beginning? That, that you have existed without beginning? No, my birthday is <laughs> this, and I've existed since that date. Yeah. And without beginning, what are you talking about? Okay, so here already, you know, our view of ourself is is completely crazy. You know, we're just seeing this person of this life and thinking that's that's all that there is, and uh, you know, and that there's a real person there. There's a real me there that goes through all these different realms of existence. But I don't change. Yeah, Body changes, yeah. mind changes, but I don't change, you know. So the I that experiences all these different things doesn't change with experiencing different things. Does that make any sense? When you experience something, are you changed? Yeah, but look how, you know, we so we just make everything, it's just solid. Yeah. Yeah. You don't think, did I change since this morning? No. Hey, we changed every single moment. Then we think, oh, yes, I changed every single moment. So there's a me that doesn't change. Yeah, and then this me that changes every single moment. Yeah? Do you remember when Geshe Tafke was teaching us um, from Navartika, and in chapter 2 he was going through all these refutations of what the non-Buddhists believe? Yeah? And remember, Geshe Tafke really likes that you know, refuting all the non-Buddhist arguments. And uh, he, he does it repeatedly, you know, because it's so important for 
us to, to think about these things. And, you know, and like, I remember one view he was just describing and, you know, well, people believe, you know, that there's a permanent essence and then it also changes. So something is permanent and impermanent at the same time. And I thought, yeah, I can understand that. That's how I think too. And then, of course, all you have to do is stop for a minute and see that way of thinking is totally ridiculous. How can something have two opposite qualities at the same time? It can't be permanent and impermanent at the same time. And yet, you know, there's a me there with some essence, yeah, that's always going to be me as it goes from life to life. Do you have that feeling when you think about getting reborn? Yeah, I'm going to get reborn in another life and I'm going to open my eyes and wake up. I'm still going to be thinking in English or whatever your native language is. And I'm going to look and say, oh, I've died and now I'm reborn and this is my next life. Yeah, do you think that's what's going to happen? Hello? Yeah? One part of, I don't know, doesn't one part of your mind think like that's what's going to happen? But then, you know, did that happen this life? Yeah? You you got born, you went, they whacked you, and then you said, oh, yes, now I'm in my new life. (laughs) Yeah. So why do we think that there's going to be this, you know, self-existing thing that's me that just kind of bobs along. Yeah. Completely ridiculous. And yet, there's part of our mind that says, yeah, yeah. Mm. yep. There's got to be something that really is me. Yeah? Don't you think that? There's got to be something that really is because if there's nothing that really is me, it's scary. That is scary. Is it, yeah, it's very scary, isn't it? Then who am I? What am I? Do I even exist? It's scarier thinking the same me goes on. It's scarier <laughs> thinking the same you goes on, yeah? That could be too. Yeah. So, you know, there's so much talk about mindfulness nowadays. Yeah. Oh, I'm mindful. The sky was beautiful today. And the sun came out after the, you know, Geshe was cremated. Yeah. And they're talking about mindfulness. I mean, that's nice. Yeah, it was auspicious. But isn't mindfulness to check what's going on in this mind? And to see if it has anything to do with reality or not. Yeah? Isn't that a more valuable kind of mindfulness? Then, yeah, there was really good tea today. Okay. 
So this mind which has existed without beginning in all realms of sentient beings, up, down, and across, beginninglessly, is empty by nature. So there's no mind in the mind. There's no I in the mind. Hmm. And therefore, because the mind is empty, the afflictions are adventitious. How does the mind being empty make the afflictions are adventitious? Can't the afflictions still be in the nature of the mind if the nature of the mind is empty? Why not? Hmm? <laughs> the afflictions themselves are empty too. Yeah, but how does that make them not adventitious? Yeah, dirt is empty, but it still makes things dirty. Yeah, so afflictions, yeah, can, why can't afflictions be empty and still be on the mind? Just because things are empty doesn't mean they don't exist. But those minds don't go on, they can't go on to full awakening because they, we can eliminate them. Mm. Mm-hmm. And a mind of love, when we work on it, can be grown to the capacity that a Buddha has. <laughs> yeah, the mind of love can be increased limitlessly. Yeah. But the afflictive minds, if they existed, if they inherent, if the mind inherently existed, then the afflictions would have to exist, and the afflictions were in the mind, then they would have to be an inherent part of the mind. Yeah. If afflictions are an inherent part of the mind, we have problems, huh? But the thing is, if you realize the emptiness of the mind, then the adventitious afflictions, which are covering that pure nature of the mind, disappear. So you have to realize the pure nature of the mind under the afflictions to get rid of the afflictions that are covering that pure nature. But that's why we have trouble realizing emptiness. Yeah. It doesn't come easily. Yeah? I was going to add that in that sense, adventitious means due to causes and conditions. And so if those causes and conditions for the afflictions are there, they will be there. But if they're, if the afflictions are countered, removing the causes for them, then they can be removed. They're right. not an inherent yeah. nature, the part of the mind. And how do you remove the afflictions by realizing emptiness? Yeah. Whereas if the mind were inherently existent, you couldn't realize its emptiness. So then you couldn't see the afflictions as adventitious. 
as not in the nature of the mind. Anyway, it's something to think about, how these sentences fit together. Yeah? Another way to say that, too, is that the um, all this um, countering and diminishing of the afflictions and the cultivation of the good qualities can only happen because the mind can change. And the mm-hmm. mind can only change because it is empty. Yeah. But, yeah, the mind can only change because it's empty. But then, how come you can increase the good qualities limitlessly, but you can't do that with the afflictions? And the afflictions are adventitious, but the good qualities aren't. Yeah? Mm-hmm. Because the afflictions are based on ignorance, which mm-hmm. does not view reality, uh, whereas the good qualities are based on um, reality. Yeah. Well, you, do you have to realize emptiness in order to generate love and compassion? No, but yeah. it's the, 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 without the realizing the wisdom of emptiness, that love or compassion is contaminated. But mm-hmm. when you realize emptiness, then it becomes uncontaminated. Yeah. But you can still develop it even though it's contaminated. Yes. Yeah. Okay, now the puzzle. And uh, this section, I remember, I was during, it was during one of the interviews with His Holiness, you know, then he brought this up, this whole puzzle, and then there's, uh, in the next next few pages, maybe the next chapter, there's a quotation that appears in two of Maitreya's texts, and His Holiness was saying, ah, how can the same verse occur in two texts by the same author? They must have a different meaning in each, you know, in each text. Otherwise... You know, you're just being redundant in what you say. Yeah. He's bringing up all these kind of puzzles. Okay, anyway, let's start with the first puzzle, which is big enough. So Maitreya <clears throat> admits that some aspects of Buddha nature are difficult for ordinary beings to understand. True or not true? Yes. Okay, so here's a quote from Ratna, uh, well, from Gyulama. <laughs> Ratna, uh, Ratna Gotra Vibhanka. Yeah. So the Buddha nature is pure and yet has de- affliction. Awakening is not afflictive yet is purified. Qualities are totally indivisible and yet not manifest. Awakening activity is spontaneous, yet without any thought. So each one of those lines is a puzzle. Okay? So so here are the puzzling points. First, from beginningless time, Buddha nature has been pure, and free from defilements, and yet it still has afflictions and defilements. How can that be? Yeah. If by its nature it's pure, 
yeah, beginninglessly. Yeah, it's pure, free from defilements, and yet it's covered with afflictions. Right? Is your Buddha nature covered with afflictions? Do you get angry and upset and jealous and arrogant? Yeah. What else is new? Second puzzle. The awakened mind is pure, yet it needs to be purified. What? The Buddha's mind is pure? Isn't the Buddha's mind awakened? The awakened mind is pure, but it still needs to be purified? Are they talking about the Buddha's mind is pure, but it needs to be purified? If not, whose awakened mind are they talking about? Okay, then the next puzzle. The emptiness of Buddha's minds and sentient beings' minds are indistinguishable in that both are pure and empty of inherent existence. Yet... Okay, so these two minds, the, or the emptiness of the Buddha's mind, the emptiness of, of sentient beings' minds, that emptiness is completely indistinguishable from somebody who has direct perception of the emptiness of Buddha's minds, emptiness of sentient beings' minds. They can't distinguish between one emptiness and the other. Yeah, they're indistinguishable. Okay, they're both pure. They're both empty of inherent existence. Yet, one of these belongs to the Buddhas and the other one to sentient beings. How can that be? If they're pure, yeah, then how can one belong to Buddha and the other to sentient beings? Then the third, fourth puzzle, Buddha's awakening activity is spontaneous Yet, it occurs without conscious motivation. So, Buddha's awakening activities, Buddhas are always doing things. Yeah. It's just happening all the time. And yet, there's no conscious motivation. How can the Buddha do anything without a conscious motivation? Doesn't the Buddha need to think, I'm going to benefit sentient beings and then go and make different manifestations to send out. Yeah. If you were a Buddha, you know, wouldn't you kind of have, you know, Buddha central every morning and think about who you're going to send emanations out to? Doesn't that require some conscious thought? Yeah. Maybe. <laughs> Maybe that's what St. Nicholas does at Christmas, you know? You know, check checks what to what to do. Okay, so those are the the puzzling points. Do you see the puzzles and the points? Yeah. Initially, these four statements may seem contradictory, but seen from the proper perspective, they cease to be paradoxical. The explanations below clarify their meaning. We must think carefully to understand the explanations correctly. Doing so will bring important and essential essential insights. Okay, so here's the first part. Uh So the Buddha nature is completely pure, 
The defilements are adventitious. They obscure the Buddha nature, but are not its essential nature. Okay, so this was for our puzzle. From beginningless time, the Buddha nature has been pure and free from defilements, and yet it has afflictions and defilements. Okay, so it's completely pure, free of, you know, these defilements are adventitious. Yeah, they obscure the Buddha nature, but they're not its essential nature. So the defilements still need to be purified. Yeah, we can't just say, oh, my anger isn't my essential nature, so it's adventitious, so I don't need to do anything about it. It's just, it's not my real nature, so it'll kind of go bye-bye by itself. That's not going to work. Okay. So the afflictions obscure the Buddha nature, but they're not part of the Buddha nature. Remember, the Buddha nature here is, remember we talked about um, affirmative negations and non-affirming negations? So Buddha nature is a non-affirming negation. Okay, Buddha nature is not something positive that you can, you know, that soul idea, yeah, that soul, that intrinsically good soul, you know, that God made. That's kind of golden, you know, in color. Anyway. Okay, then the second point, the awakened mind has no defilements. But prior to becoming Buddha, the mind's nature is covered by defilements. Okay, so our puzzle was the mind is pure, yet it needs to be purified. So the basic, the empty, the ultimate nature of the mind is pure, but the mind still needs to be purified because it has the afflictions. Okay, and do you remember, this was a point that came up a year or two ago, how if the conventional nature of the mind is obscured, then the emptiness is also obscured. So even though emptiness is pure and it cannot be obscured, it is obscured. It still needs to be purified, yeah, because of the the conventional mind that it is the emptiness of that conventional mind has afflictions. Okay. Okay, so it is like gold hidden by stains. The gold is still gold, but its luster and beauty cannot be seen. Similarly, when the mind is immersed in defilements, the potential to develop a Buddha's qualities remains it is part of the mind's nature. But, however, this potential is covered and cannot yet function as the actual qualities of a Buddha. Love and compassion are present in the unawakened mind, 
They cannot be forever extricated from the mind. But when anger overwhelms, overwhelms the mind, the seed of our love is not apparent, although it is still there. Yeah. This is something really important to think about when you are not getting along with somebody. Okay? Or when you don't like somebody or you don't like what's going on. Okay? So just even you take the last sentence. Love and compassion are present in the unawakened mind of the person that whose guts I can't stand. Yeah. So it's there. Where was I? Okay. So the potential to develop, when the mind is immersed in defilements, the potential to develop a Buddhist qualities remains. It is part of the mind's nature. However, this potential is covered and cannot yet function as the actual qualities of a Buddha. So you're mad at somebody, you know, they're so angry, they're so ankara, they this, they that. Yeah. Can you look at them and say, yeah, they have the Buddha nature. It's covered. It can't function because right now their afflictions are functioning and clouding the mind. Can you say that when you're looking at somebody else who's being really uncooperative? and develop compassion for them by thinking that way? Can you look at yourself when you're being stubborn and uncooperative and think, oh, my Buddha nature is still there? Yeah. And even love and compassion are present in my unawakened mind. But I can't access them now because my mind is completely tied up in jealousy and competition and whatever else it is. Yeah. Can you can you think that way about yourself and have some tolerance and compassion for yourself? Yeah. Okay. So what I'm trying to do is, you know, the we can see what's being written here as philosophical points. Yeah, and they are philosophical points, and it's fascinating philosophically to think about these things. And it's important to relate them to our lives. Yeah, and to use what this says not as something interesting. Oh, yeah, sentient beings' minds are covered with afflictions, but they're pure. Yes, that Buddha nature's, you know, like that. But to really think that person at this moment Okay. Yeah, you, you want to know the latest. I, you haven't heard the news for a while. Okay. Well, the war in Ukraine's still going on. The, you know, Hamas and, and Israel are still at each other. But, okay. So, um, so Donnie has, uh, the trial of this week, you know, was, uh, with E. Carroll, no, E. E. Jean Carroll, okay, who he, um, who he raped in a, a dressing room 
in some expensive department store some years ago. And then when she brought it up, he just proceeded to defame her and criticize her. And da, 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 da. So there was one trial uh, some weeks ago, you know, and uh, the judge says, yes, you know, he did that and he had to pay some damages. But then he continued to to trash her you know, even after he got penalized and, you know, with the first trial. So it's going on and on. And so they had another trial. Yeah. And this trial was decided by nine people in a jury. Yeah. And so the issue was not, did he do it or, or did he rape her or not? The issue was that he's been defaming her and she said, this has been really hell for me because I'm getting all these threats and my whole reputation is shot. She was some kind of advice columnist for some magazine. So my reputation is shot and I'm getting all these death threats and horrible things and it's really scary. And so she wants him to stop. And so the trial this week was about that. So the jury... Uh, they concluded the trial this afternoon. The jury um, discussed for about two hours, and they came back with a verdict. And they're giving her $83.3 million. He has to give her 83.3, I think it is, million dollars. Okay, 65 million of that is punitive damages, trying to get him to stop doing that. And the, the rest, the major, the minority of the money is for her suffering, you know, and loss of reputation. Okay. So. <laughs> yeah, that's interesting, huh? Now. Can can you look at Donnie? Can you look at E. Jean Carroll? Can we look at everybody involved in that whole thing and think, you know, the basic, the empty nature of their mind is pure, but their minds are covered by afflictions. Well, their minds, we can say, yeah, their minds sure are covered by afflictions. Well, how is it that the nature of the mind is pure then? Yeah, if the afflictions are covering everything, how can you say the basic nature is pure? Okay, in terms of emptiness, when you say that, you're talking about the null, the ultimate nature of the mind is is pure. Yeah, but you can say that the conventional nature. One way of looking at it, you say, well, the conventional nature is covered with afflictions. Yeah. And those can't go on to awakening that, you know, those conventional minds have to be ceased. They can't go on to awakening. On the other hand, just the clear and cognizant nature of those minds, that is pure and that nature can go on for awakening to awakening. So your anger can't go from now to awakening, but the clear and cognizant nature, conventional nature of the mind can. Okay. 
But my point is, can you look at Donnie? Can you look at E. Jean Carroll? Can we look at all the attorneys? There's a whole hullabaloo thing going on with the attorneys, too. And think, you know, look at all, all these beings have the, the ultimate nature of their mind is pure. Yeah. But their minds definitely are overwhelmed with afflictions. And so is my mind. Yeah. It's, it's, it's sometimes hard to put those two things together, isn't it? Yeah. That's what these puzzles are getting at. Yeah. It's hard to put those things together. But I'm making that example, you know, with the court case, because I think it's always good. Otherwise, we just, oh, some mind out somewhere, you know, it's the, its afflictions are adventitious, but its nature is pure. No, let's think of what's going on in front of our nose. And can we, do we, you know, how does our mind change when we look at people with that kind of knowledge? Yeah, when you look at, at Donnie, or you look at, you know, any of the attorneys, or A. Jean Carroll, or any of them, yeah, and you think, yeah, they, the basic nature of their mind is pure, but it's covered by afflictions. When the war in Ukraine broke out last year, I came across these pictures of Putin with many dogs, and he was rolling on the floor with complete joy, so it's like, they can still have kindness in the very next moment. Yeah. It was helpful to reduce my anger. Yeah. Yeah. Because we tend after, you know, whatever experience we have with somebody, that's who they are. Yeah. And they're nothing other than that. So if we had a bad experience with them, then they're just an awful person. And I'm, just not going to talk to them for the rest of my life because it's not worth anything to do that. And we sign sign them off. I want to ask a clarifying question of, um, are love and compassion part of the pure mind, like the Buddha nature? Are they qualities of that? This sentence kind of yeah. alludes to that. When we talk of the nature of the ultimate nature, the nature of the mind is pure, okay? Love and compassion are not the same as emptiness, okay? Love and compassion are mental factors that arise together with the conventional nature of the mind, okay? So it's different levels of the mind. You, we, what he's saying here is the love and compassion are still there when somebody's upset, but you, they can't be accessed because they're being covered by, by the afflictions. Mm -hmm. I'm stuck on the sentence, it is like gold hidden by stains, could I replace that with, it is like gold hidden by paint? Sure. Okay. Thank you. Sure. Yeah, paint, dirt, stains. Uh, we, could, we could either paint the posts in the Buddha hall or we could stain them. Can you tell which we did? 
<laughs> okay. Then the third point, okay? So the third puzzle was the emptiness of the Buddha's minds and sentient beings' uh, minds are indistinguishable in that both are pure and empty of inherent existence. Yet one belongs to the Buddha and the other to sentient beings. How can that be if they're both pure? So in terms of their ultimate nature, both Buddha's minds and sentient beings' minds are empty of inherent existence. And any difference in these emptinesses cannot be discerned by the wisdom directly realizing emptiness. Okay, so I explained that before. However, on the conventional level, the two minds are different, yeah, because one is the mind with obscurations, and the other is a mind that is completely free from obscurations. Mm -hmm. So both minds ultimately have a pure nature, but on the conventional level, yeah, one is filled with obscurations and the other one not. And then the fourth point. I still don't completely understand this point about the emptiness is, um, what did you say? It's contaminated, well, polluted or polluted. covered. Yeah. The emptiness, you said the emptiness, not just the mind, but the emptiness, emptiness itself yeah. is obscured. That was the word, obscured. So if there's a, that seems like there's a difference in the emptiness then that. Wouldn't a Buddha be able to tell this is the emptiness of a of obscured mind, this is the emptiness of a Buddha's mind? They're, because we're saying they're, one's obscured and one's not. Yeah. But what is it that makes them obscured is the empty nature itself, you know, both empty one empty nature is obscured, the other one isn't. Yeah. But the emptiness itself, the two emptinesses are exactly the same. That sounds contradictory to me. <laughs> Let's think of an analogy. There's, um, mm -hmm. I don't know, you have two bowls of water. Yeah, both are wet. Both bowls of water have the nature of being wet. Yeah, but one bowl has um, sprinkles on all over the top of it and sinking down into it. Okay, so uh, saying on the ultimate, when we're talking about the ultimate nature of both minds, they're the same. But when we look conventionally at those two minds, they're different. And because one mind is polluted, you know, the conventional level of that mind is polluted, then because the emptiness of that mind and the clear and cognizance of that mind are one nature, yeah, with this one is polluted, then you say the other one is also polluted. But if you look at it from a different angle, this one isn't polluted because the garbage hasn't is is adventitious. It's not in its nature. This is is what they're playing with in 
this getting our mind to move around and looking at things from different angles. So it's the point that they that to be one nature and two, whatever you call it, isolates one nature yeah. and two isolates that the isolates have to match in some way. Is that no. what we're saying there? No, they're different isolates. Yes, but but if one is polluted, the other is polluted. Yeah, but this the ultimate nature of the mind is only polluted because the conventional nature is polluted. Yeah. 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 The empty nature of the mind from its own side has no pollutions, right. but because it's together, it's like what is it called? Guilty by association. <laughs> okay. <laughs> yeah. So it's more like a terminal terminological thing? No. No. Not not really, because there there is a difference. There's no difference, but there is a difference. Yeah. I mean because there's no difference in that emptiness is emptiness to any direct perceiver of emptiness. There's no difference. But there is a difference because one is the emptiness of a Buddhist mind and the other is the emptiness of, you know, Upeka's mind. <laughs> Excuse me. I, I don't, I'm trying not, I don't really want to insult Upeka. Yeah. But it's true. Yeah. It's, Peter's mind, too. Yeah, it's all of our minds. Hmm? Okay, then the fourth point. The Buddha's... So this is the fourth point, remember, was the, the, um, the Buddha's actions are spontaneous, yeah, but they occur without conscious motivation. Yeah. So, you know, you think you're the busy of the busy with your nose and everything, yeah, well, just think of what happens when you become a Buddha. Yeah, you're, you're gonna have infinite noses in everybody's business all the time. Your heart's delight. You know, then you can distract yourself from looking at your own mind for the rest of, you know, until samsara is empty. You know, because when we stick our nose in everybody else's business, it's a good, good distraction, isn't it? You know, oh yes, I'm do I'm being compassionate, but actually look what's going on here and they need me and I'm involved and now I know things that other people don't know. Yeah, you know, it getting involved in other people's business keeps keeps us really yeah, we, we have our own drama going. Yeah, with it, right? Yeah, so when you're you're gonna be a Buddha, you're gonna have so many noses and so many people's business. Yeah. I have my nose in so-and-so's business. Why don't they do this? You know, I told them 50 million eons ago when we were both at Shravasti Abbey to stop complaining. And I became a Buddha and they didn't and they're still complaining and like, yeah, how am I, I gotta fix them. How am I gonna fix them and make them stop complaining? Yeah, you've been working on that puzzle for a long, quite a few eons, yeah. Okay, the Buddha's awakening activities are effortless. They occur spontaneously without purposefully cultivating a motivation. 
a Buddha is free from conception and has become so habituated with compassion over many eons that no motivations or thought is needed for that Buddha's awakened activities to radiate out in the most flawless and suitable way according to the disposition of each sentient being. So the Buddha doesn't think, but he's done it so much that it just happens effortlessly. Kind of like how we get angry, how we get annoyed, you know? We've done it so much, the smallest little thing we just get irritated at. Yeah. I was sitting the other day, it's so, this mind is so interesting. You know, you don't get bored. I was just sitting there kind of, you know, in this room and looking around and watching my mind and the mind saying, this is wrong, it needs to be fixed, and that's wrong, and it should be changed. And that, I don't like that. And they were all like teeny things, like, what is this thing lying there? It's at that angle, it should be this angle, you know? And, and uh, you know, there, oh, there's a piece of string being on the floor. Oh, it shouldn't be like that. And watching my mind, just everything it saw, it didn't like. Yeah, it found something wrong. And it was so humorous to watch this because the things that it was picking at were like, infinitesimal. I don't think anybody else in the room would have noticed those, you know. But I could just watch my mind being so entertained, picking faults with all these things. It's so spontaneous. Yes, spontaneous. So that's what Buddha's enlightened activities are like, just like that. It just, you just do it, you know, because you're so familiar. Wouldn't that be nice, you know, to have to have kind kindness be spontaneous, yeah? Instead of oh yeah, yeah don't don't you love it when you see your mind? I don't know if you people have this experience, but when I see my mind being quite selfish and not wanting to do something, yeah, and then still trying to talk my mind into doing it. Yeah. You know the mind that says, I don't feel like it. Remember we talked one time about, yeah, what is I don't feel like it? Yeah. Yeah, take a look. I've been watching that one. That one's so interesting. It just pops up out of nowhere. I don't feel like it. Yes, you're right. You know, proper, irrefutable logic, you know. <laughs> I don't feel like it. Yeah, then? Yeah. Why is that mind? What is that mind? Where is it coming from? And how come I salute it and do whatever it wants? You know, it takes effort to deal with that mind, doesn't it? Yeah, when you have the I don't feel like it mind, it takes effort, you know, and so you start. Yes, I can practice bodhicitta in every action during the day and accumulate infinite merit. Geshe Kapke said so. 
So why don't I change my attitude right now and, and kind of go help those people? <laughs> yeah? Okay, that antidote didn't work. What's another? <laughs> I got to try another antidote. You know, they say that, that these minds are not adventitious. So they got, I got to be able to do something with it. So what's another one? I don't feel like it. Okay, it's impermanent. Yeah, that mind that says, I don't feel like it. It's just there for a minute, and it'll go away. <laughs> what? Maybe yes, maybe no. <laughs> maybe yes, maybe no. Yeah, when will it go away? Well, that one didn't work as a very good, you know, antidote. What do I do? You know, so it takes effort with the affliction, doesn't it? Yeah, you keep trying and trying. And one part of your mind, you know, you're quoting Geshe Topke, and the other part of your mind is going, yeah, yeah. (laughs) And you know that? Or haven't you? Okay. A Buddhist free of conception has become so habituated with compassion over many eons that no motivation or thought is needed for that Buddha's awakened activities. Amazing, isn't it? This is inconceivable to us unawakened beings because our virtuous deeds require deliberate effort, don't they? Yeah. Okay, I'm going to get up tomorrow morning and I'm going to make offerings on my altar. Yeah, okay. Then the next morning, now I better hurry up and have my cup of tea and get to the hall. I'll make offerings later. I mean, really, it's... Five sixteen and a half in the morning, and you want me to put a bunch of water in a bunch of little bowls? <laughs> yeah. What kind of? Why is that virtuous? Yeah, it's amazing the effort, isn't it? Uh-huh. Yeah, that's just I. You know, I can't lift that water jug up. It's you know, it's. It's too heavy, and it takes too long. And anyway, how is that virtuous? I'm just pouring water in bowls. I'll pour some water in a cup, and I'll drink it. (laughs) Yeah, why isn't that virtuous? Well, that's a good question. What's the difference between pouring water in a cup that you're going to drink and making water bowl offerings in the morning? What's the difference? I mean, motivation is the most important. If I'm pouring water in the water bowls because I think I have to and I don't actually have a virtuous mind and I'm drinking water to prolong my life so that I can practice the Dharma and benefit sentient beings, I think drinking the water might be more virtuous then. Mm. (laughs) Do you care about other people who are thirsty at the time you're drinking the water? 
oh, that, that could be possible. Probably not what's in my mind at 5.15, but it, it's a great idea. Okay. Remember it tomorrow morning. <laughs> Shane, did you have something you wanted to... Oh, I just see the power of the object. Well, except if you're just pouring water into bowls, where's the object? Yeah, you say the power of the object, but if you're not thinking at some level, you know, I'm offering water to the three jewels, yeah, then you pour the water in the bowls and then you go off and have a cup of tea yourself and uh, forget that, that you were even offering those. Yeah. Oh, just one action self-centered and the other one is virtuous. Yeah. Yeah. One is wanting to be generous and the other is, I'm thirsty. And so I'm saying I'm drinking it for the benefit of all sentient beings. <laughs> yes. I do all these things to take care of myself. They're all done for the benefit of sentient beings, you know. I sleep 12 hours, you know, for the benefit of sentient beings so I can get up tomorrow morning and be real groggy because I slept too much. <laughs> okay. As we practice the path, sometimes discouragement fills our minds. If we observe closely, we will see that discouragement is simply a mass of distorted conceptions that we believe to be true. Yeah. Think about that. When your mind gets discouraged, discouragement looks solid. I'm discouraged. Path is too hard. It's too long. I can't do it. What do you want out of me anyway? I mean, it feels so solid, doesn't it? What is it? Discouragement? Yeah, a mass of distorted conceptions. Do you ever think that when you feel discouraged? And say, there's a mass of distorted conceptions in my mind. I mean, imagine if you said that to yourself at the moment you felt discouraged. Would you still feel discouraged? Or would you laugh? Yeah. You'd laugh. Yeah, it's just a bunch of stupid conceptions that we believe to be true. Instead of following these proliferating perverted thoughts, if we challenge their validity, we would easily see they are false. One distorted conception is particularly pernicious. It believes that Buddha nature does not exist and thus eliminating dukkha and attain, attaining awakening is not possible. Yeah, that's a really bad wrong view. Yeah, and yet it's really prominent. Yeah, I remember in college, you know, studying, you study, you know, psychology and the rat thing and while the rats running around and what they do and you think yeah this is just the way things are 
Yeah. Nothing to do about it. Don't don't challenge what we're thinking. It's just, yeah. I mean, because this is what the scientists were saying at the Mind and Life conferences, you know, we're hardwired to be self-centered. Yeah, hardwired. Yeah. So those neurons have self-centeredness in them? How does that work? When we, they say we're hardwired to be self-centered, how do neurons make you self-centered? Yeah, neurons are they're, they're just blipping. It's interesting, isn't it? Yeah, we say, oh, it's just, it's just, you know, what's going on, the electricity in the brain. But is it? Okay. Okay, so then we say, yeah, I'm, I'm bound by my body. I can't become anything more than what my body is. So awakening, you know, omniscient mind, all this stuff is just a bunch of fairy tales. Yeah, because I'm hardwired to be selfish. That's what we're taught, aren't we? Yeah, in science class. Yeah, economics class. What do you hear in economics? Yeah, sentient beings are self-centered. They're looking out for their own selves. Yeah, and we're told this over and over, and then we say, well, yeah, so I'm just normal looking out for myself, myself, thinking only of myself. It's just normal what everybody else does. Anyway, there's no alternative. I can't change. Yeah. And if you think like that in this society, most people agree with you. Yeah. But if we look closely at that idea, is that idea true? Yeah. Was Shakyamuni Buddha hardwired to be selfish? That's a, that's a hard one, isn't it? Yeah. Oh, yeah. Buddha, hardwired to be selfish. Okay. So Maitreya banishes this thought about, you know, enlightenment being pos- impossible. And so here's another one of his verses from Gulama. If the Buddha nature were not present, okay, there would be no remorse over suffering. There would be no longing for nirvana or striving and devotion f- toward this aim. Okay. Interesting argument to disprove what we believe. If sentient beings truly lacked the possibility to be awakened and were doomed to irreversible samsaric suffering, no one would ever regret being in samsara or long to be free from dukkha and attain a nirvana. Why would nobody ever regret being in samsara or long for liberation? Why? 
if some if sentient beings truly lack the possibility to be awakened and we're doomed to irreversible samsaric suffering, why would nobody ever regret being in samsara or learning to be free from dukkha and attain nirvana? There's no alternative. Yeah, there's no alternative. So, yeah, nobody would long for a better state because they already know there is no better state. Yeah. So then nobody has, uh, you know, any regret or distaste for being in samsara. Nobody wants anything better because you're told it doesn't exist. Yeah. This is kind of like, you know, uh, kids, if you, um, if you grow up in a certain climate and you're told something repeatedly as a child, yeah, then, yeah, you're told as a child you'll amount to nothing, then you just believe it. You never challenge that. You never think, oh, possibly I could do something. Yeah. So kind of like that. Very sad. Yeah. If Buddha nature, if sentient beings truly lack the possibility to become awakened, okay, no one would aspire for full awakening or make an effort towards that goal. Because they would think there's no such thing as full awakening. Yeah, so why try for something that doesn't exist? Okay, so this is uh, clearly not true. The life stories of the Buddhas and other realized beings disprove this. We see within ourselves the wish to be free from samsara's dukkha, the yearning for freedom from the grip of afflictions and karma. While we may not make as much effort as we would like towards this aim, we do take steps in this direction. This is based on trust that there is an alternative to samsara and that an awakened state exists. So there is an alternative to samsara. There is a way to overcome the afflictions. If the afflictions could not be overcome, then they would be permanent. So then we would always be angry. We would always be arrogant. I think I'm a little bit confused. Well, okay, I know I'm confused. But what I thought I was hearing was the logic of this argument mm-hmm. that basically if if it wasn't possible to do this, mm-hmm. no one would want – I guess my point is, sorry, it seems like it's saying, well, because people aspire for this, it must exist. And, and mm-hmm. that argument doesn't seem logical right. to me. Yeah. So – yeah, so it's kind of using the reverse. Okay. Yeah, of if this isn't possible, then nobody would aspire for it. Yeah, but then you could, you know, in one way, yeah, can you uh, take two steps and, and land on the moon? No, so nobody aspires to land on the moon that way. Yeah. 
but people aspire to go to eternal place of, you know, say Christian heaven where there is no suffering. And, and so people in that case do aspire for something that isn't actually possible. Yeah. Their vision of what they're aspiring for is relief from suffering. Yeah. That is something universal. Doesn't matter the religion. Yeah. What you think is the cause of the suffering and what you think is the path are different in the religions. Yeah. But the aspiration across the board for everybody is, I want to stop suffering. It, it seems like even if sentient beings truly lack the possibility to be awakened and were doomed to irreversible samsaric suffering, that, that wouldn't preclude people believing they could be free from it. And that, that, and then they would aspire towards it. Just as people now believe there's pe even though we know that we can, um, be free, we can, we're being taught that we can reach awakening and be free of suffering. And yet there are people that, that don't believe that. There's going to be people believing mm -hmm. both, whether either one is, whichever one is true. So it seems like, for there to be no one who regrets suffering and no one who would aspire for waking, there'd have to be no one who believes that that's possible. But mm -hmm. even if it weren't possible, there would probably still be people who believed it. Yep. And there would be people that want out. Just like if there's an animal in a cage and they can't get out, they still may want out. Yeah, but they have the idea that they could get out. And they have the idea that there is a state outside of the cage. So that that's the thing. Right. That's what I'm saying is even if if there were no awakening, there may be people that would believe that, that there, there is, is such a freedom. Thing. Yeah. But but then yeah, that's possible. But on the other hand, if there were no such thing as awakening, how many people would even have the idea that there is? Yeah, I think that that's more what it, what it's saying. Just the fact that everybody thinks that there is some state. I mean, the human heart longs for a state without suffering. That's so apparent. Yeah. So there must be some, uh, you know, basis for that. We know we can alleviate our suffering a little bit. So on that basis, then maybe people think, well, then it's possible to eliminate it altogether. Yeah. Okay, so the, I just want to go through the questions to reflect on. Okay, uh, contemplate the four puzzling points above and then reflect on the explanations that resolve them. Yeah. So I know the arguments that you're making against this because I kind of been through it too with my mind. But then if you twist it a little bit, you see, you know, if, you know, there's truly no way to alleviate suffering, then would anybody even think that there was some sort of way to do it? Yeah, if there were no holy beings around... Yeah, who had attained, yeah, would we even consider that?
Okay, then the second point to reflect on, feel your own yearning for spiritual awakening and your aspiration to free yourself from the obscurations that bind you. Realize that these indicate the existence of the Buddha nature. Respect that aspect of yourself and determine to nourish it. Okay, so here's another thing. If awakening were impossible, why does Geshe Tapke, every single talk, take half of the time of the talk to tell us not to make use of our precious human life? Yeah. If it weren't possible, yeah. Well, would you, I mean, do you say, well, he just says that because that's what he was taught and his job is to say nice, encouraging things. Is that why he, he, he says that every single talk? Yeah. Just the fact that he tells us the same thing every time, again and again, have something to do with maybe that's possible and he wants us to move in that direction? Or do we sit there and listen? Oh, he's just saying that. Yeah. Yeah, why doesn't he get to, to, to the real juicy thing? Yeah, emptiness and dependent arising are the same thing. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, he's talking about if I use my mind properly, I can create merit. What does that have to do with dependent arising and emptiness? Yeah, we're f- full of garbage, aren't we? <laughs> yeah, but think about it. You know, if we really thought inside of ourselves that awakening was totally impossible, why do we come every morning, you know, every week to listen to Geshe Tafke tell us the same thing that he's been telling this time, last series, every series, every series, you know? that your teachers have been telling you since the first Dharma teaching you, you came to. Yeah. Why, why do we keep going if we think that, oh, it's just impossible, they're just saying it? Yeah. Something's making us come back. Okay. So I wanted to, to finish this book in the next few sessions we have, and we just did two whole pages. <laughs> so, um, yeah, we'll, we'll see how we get. Um, maybe it'll take a little longer to finish than what I had thought. Okay. But we will start on Chapter 14 next time. We're just thinking about this example that you gave with the $83 million penalty. Uh-huh. And when you think about it, um, that's an interesting penalty to get because I don't think our afflictions can be bought. I mean, when we're in that state, we just are driven. Mm-hmm. And I don't think that particular person has the exposure to any kind of skill set right now that he can stop that. Mm. And the idea behind the penalty is that they make it the big enough number that it will stop him. Mm-hmm. But 
knowing what we know about afflictions, regardless of who this person is, that's not going to work. Yeah. So E. Carol Jean, is that her name? Mm-hmm. She's going to, she's going to keep getting more cases <laughs> and more money. Yeah. Maybe she'd like to donate to the Buddha. <laughs> <laughs> I had that idea too. You know, I mean, wouldn't 82.3 million be just as good? Yeah. <laughs> well, we shouldn't covet other people's possessions. Yeah, okay, joking, joking. Maybe joking. <laughs> okay. 